Welcome to HEP Talks. I'm Luke Kemper here with Sam Crome, Deputy Head Teacher at St. Peter's in Surrey. So Sam, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me today, Luke. And so, Sam, you are the author of an upcoming book called The Power of Teams, and we had the good fortune of having you on uh, HEP's The Big Idea Talk, uh, where you you talked about the power of teams. And so for, for our listeners who haven't perhaps seen that video yet, um, you can definitely find a recorded version on our Vimeo. I'll also link it in the show notes for this podcast episode. I do recommend watching that uh, before you listen to this um, for two reasons. One, it was just a fantastic presentation, really, really interesting. And two, um, because a lot of the questions I'm going to ask are kind of based on that presentation. And uh, Sam, you know this, so <laughs> I've, I've prepped you. But yeah, uh, enough of me talking. Let's get started. So uh, Sam, would you like to just kind of give a brief introduction of yourself and maybe talk about how you got interested in teams and research about teams? Sure, thank you, Luke. So I am a deputy head teacher of a secondary school, um, sort of a mid-size, fourteen hundred student secondary school in Surrey, and um, I kind of look after the pastoral life of the school, but also things like staff well-being and that kind of area of the school. I've got a massive area in kind of evidence-informed practice, and I've uh, been really excited about the kind of research wave that we've been riding for the last few years in education. And I suppose when I was kind of on my leadership journey. I reflected, as you do when you become a leader and you go to those courses and people ask you what kind of leadership style do you have? I'm not massively into all that kind of thing, but it did make me reflect that actually in the earlier part of my career was definitely in sort, in sort of lone wolf mode where I would uh, charge uh, charge through my tasks, try and kind of be the best, probably felt a bit competitive with the people around me and didn't really welcome collaboration. I saw it as collaboration for me would slow me down and it would make me less effective so, and so I didn't really partake where I could in, in kind of group work or teamwork. But then, as I said, when I became a leader and I reflected on that a bit more, I thought, well, actually, you haven't ever really given it a chance. And I like I like elite sport and I like kind of looking at really successful cultures and organisations. And, and I started to read more and realise that actually the, the best examples we have of things flourishing are in groups and in teams. So that there must be, therefore, something to that. So I just became really interested in reading about um, reading about teams, trying to understand them more. And then I guess I realised quite quickly that it wasn't just anecdotal. It wasn't just like, oh, this this sports team were really great because they just clicked. You know, there was actually much more um, evidence behind how teams, not, not an exact blueprint because people aren't, you know, blueprints, people aren't robots, but there was more evidence to follow to work out how teams could really thrive. And that just kick-started a real passion. So I, I've just been kind of reading and researching uh, for the last sort of, two or three years and I've tried to diversify the reading so I've gone through you know I've read, read sports books I've read loads of academic papers that talk about very much cross-sector teamwork I've visited some interesting organizations like large social media companies um, the football association UEFA so I've tried to kind of get a really rich understanding of teams holistically and then the real challenge was how do you take the, the most appropriate bits of that and narrow down to the, the unique context of a, of a school? Yeah, yeah. And that's, of course, what we kind of want to focus on today. But it's all 
quite interesting in my opinion. Um, so I'll, I'll be asking some school specific questions, but, but others um, maybe not so much. And this first one is perhaps not so much, um, but at the beginning of your uh, presentation, you say that 90% uh, of employees believe teamwork is critical, but only 25% of them consider teams to be effective. Um, can we maybe unpack that a little bit? Why do you think there is that disconnect there? Yeah, sure. Well, this, that, this is from an American study um, of, of kind of employees in American businesses. I said, I guess to, to sum it up, really, if you and I have very different knowledge and skill sets, then in theory, we would make a good team um, because maybe I know loads about one thing, you know loads about another thing. I've worked in this place, you've worked in this place. We're bringing loads of different but complementary things to the table. Mm -hmm. So in theory, I can say, right, we would we would make a good team. However, the reality might be that we don't work well together at all. Maybe I'm really lax with deadlines and you're really like nervously agitated about when they when they're looming and therefore we just don't work well together. Um, or maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> um, and so that's just, just an example that in theory, people can look outside and go, yeah, that should work. Teamwork should be really important. Like that's how we, that's how we would survive in the early years. And that's how we would thrive now. Like no, no civilization was really built on one person. So, so in theory, you look at that and think, well, teamwork should be vital. And yet actually people's reality of what teamwork is, in, you know, the day-to-day -day situations is, is often way less effective than that. So I think that's why there's such a big disconnect between what we anticipate teamwork should be, and then our and then our lived reality as well. Um, and I, I think the other thing for school teachers, staff, is that often our teams are really crammed in to the end of a day. Um, and sometimes the theory behind working together is great, but then so many other things come up that the team never really gets to enact its its vision. So again, I can see it, I can understand again why that survey data shows that people don't view their teams being actually as effective as they as they perhaps should be. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I can, thinking back to my teaching days, I can imagine myself thinking, oh yeah, this school working together as a team would be really great, but I'm too busy to partake yeah. in these team activities. Yeah. <laughs> so I do get that. In, in the uh, presentation, you listed nine traits of, of high-performing teams, and I, I won't list all of them, but some of the ones that I kind of highlighted here were uh, clear vision and purpose, belonging and trust, communication and candor, and team diversity, and there, there are uh, five more as well. Um, I think you kind of covered this in your in your talk, but it's worth repeating here. Is there one that you find to be kind of the most important or um, one that you might focus on first? Sure. So I guess because there are obviously hundreds of traits of high performing teams, which I tried to kind of boil down to about nine in that in that particular talk. Um, I think there are. I start with three, and then I'll kind of boil down to one. I think essentially when you look through the research and you just look at best practice of teams, the best teams need a really, really clear, strong vision that everyone has bought into. Like, who are we? Where are we going? What's what's happening? They then need loads of structure. They need to know how they do their work. They need to know what knowledge they need to do the work. They need to have clear systems and processes to follow. Otherwise, everything becomes inconsistent. But that doesn't sound particularly glamorous or sexy when you talk about teamwork. But then the final thing, and this is the one that I kind of believe in the most, 
they need high levels of belonging and trust and psychological safety. So you, you could easily create, I could, we could create a little mini team now where I set out a really clear vision for how great this talk is going to be. And then I give you three processes to follow to make sure that you do your job right. But if I do that with an air of kind of superiority or judgment or blame, um, then you wouldn't perform as well as if I give you those first two things, but made you feel very comfortable and at ease and, and really showed you that I believed in you, um, even if something went wrong on this particular occasion. So you can have a successful team that hits certain metrics when you just have structure and vision, but you need the belonging and the trust to create this team that want to work together and feel really good about doing that. Um, so a lot of the work I've based kind of my writing on is it's about belonging and inclusion um, for people to really feel like they're thriving. And there's, there's, there's a research out there that shows that teams with low levels of belonging can perform, but it's often for a limited period of time. You know, like they might be able to high pressure, like, you know, I, I know some some friends of mine who work in management consultancy and that kind of thing. Um, they, they complain about how they're on a project and it's toxic. Um, but they've got you know four months to to nail these days these outcomes and they can they'll like go hammer and tong with each other to achieve that um and then in the end they they desperately try and leave that project so they, they've achieved something good but it wasn't sustainable and they couldn't carry on so again i'd question anyone that said that belonging wasn't an important part of longevity for a team yeah yeah no i think this idea yeah it, it underpinned a lot of your talk and i i'm incredibly interested in it especially that, that last part that you just said about you know a team being able to operate i wonder if there's any parallels that you could draw to the uh english national team and their performance in the uh the, the euros and the world cup just just a thought experiment <laughs> it's really interesting actually because I, I was lucky enough to go to St. george's park where england headquarters are last year and, and i did a little talk with with some people there and um they are very very desperate desperately trying to change the dna of english football um, and it, it is actually working but it's like turning the titanic so they've got this really clear vision now and this runs from the elite men's football team um, the women's football team, the youth football teams, all the way down to grassroots, like at the age of like under sixes. This idea that you play to enjoy the game, you focus on technical skills um, rather than um, kind of like hoofing the ball in the air to get to score a goal. Like outcomes have been taken off the table. Um, like for example, if you play, if you play football and you're nine years old at the moment, they don't publish league tables or results anymore because they want the focus to be on enjoyment and building relationship and skills rather than outcomes. So they're actually really trying to take away those kind of pressure and outcome-based stuff so that hopefully young footballers will grow up playing with more freedom. Um, but I think the media and the society are still quite entrenched in, in judging the players, <laughs> um, even if the management have sort of slightly shifted away from that approach. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, while we're still on the the topic of belonging, um, so you read a book called Belonging, right? Um, and yeah, sorry, who who wrote that? Um, that one is written by. Um, oh, I was completely out of my head because I was just thinking. Um, I was just thinking about the culture code by Daniel Cole as you were talking. It's Eastwood. Um, what's his first name? Owen Eastwood. Owen Eastwood. Who's a really so belonging is by Owen Eastman who's a really bright sparky guy from New Zealand who's been who's lived over here for a while in the UK for, uh, for a couple of decades I think 
and he's a performance coach. So he he works with teams from all different sectors about how they can increase their performance. Um, but he starts with belonging, and that's the premise of his book, Belonging. So re- I'd really recommend it. And actually, if you're looking for a book that takes a bit of a break from research, mm. this one is much more, I would say, anecdotal and emotive. Um, but I, I quite enjoyed that because I, at the time I was reading tons of academic papers. His slightly more personal style was a real, it was a real breath of fresh air, actually. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I thought your takeaways on that, I I haven't read the book personally, but I thought the takeaways, like, we all want to belong. <clears throat> belonging should come before performance and belonging is not a fixed state. Um, I thought those were were really interesting. Without dwelling too much on, on those, um, I, I was kind of curious, why do you think work culture, at least it seems here in the UK and, and I would also say in the US, generally prioritizes performance over belonging and are there things we can do to kind of start to change that culture a little bit? I guess it all comes down to um, accountability and outcomes, isn't it? You know, people want to make sure that when they they hire someone or when they take someone on, they're going to achieve results because they've outlaid a, a lot of money for that person um, and, and a lot rides on it. So I can understand why there's pressure for lots of different sectors, including schools who have quite a regimented accountability system these days, that if you bring someone in, you are you're desperate for them to succeed, maybe because you like them, but also because you need you need your organisation to perform to a certain mm-hmm. level. So I think it all comes down to the pressure that leadership feel under to perform. They then project that onto their employees a lot of the time, um, and therefore they don't feel like they've got the space to let someone just belong and just work through maybe some initial difficulties when they first get somewhere. Mm-hmm. They want to see that immediate performance. What do you bring to us straight away? Uh, so it's, you know, I think it's really easy to see how it happens. And... Uh, maybe people just get so entrenched in that mentality they don't think actually what helps people to perform feeling at ease you know that uh, there's no doubt about it is that like when you when you do a, a task it's high pressure the more calm and relaxed you feel but, and you know they they've done loads of tests before usually on athletes about like your heart rate before a for, before a big event the people that manage to lower their heart rate and calm down often outperform people that don't you know, like athletics mm. and that kind of thing um, so the same thing applies like when you feel with less stress in your work, you're more likely to operate freely um, and show the best version of you without second guessing everything. So, um, but yeah, as I said, I think it's easy to see how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And just on the, on the second part of that, do you think there's, let's maybe focus on schools. Um, is there a way to sort of change that culture in schools? Is it changing or not really yet? And what do you think? I guess the big, the big, big question is, are the accountability measures and the reasons we have to perform as important as we think they are? So mm-hmm. our, our exam results for students, obviously we want students to get the best possible exam results so they can go on and, and all the doors are open for them in life. That's why we do this, so that they've got a future which isn't limited by their, you know, by, by their schooling. Um, so it's hugely important for students to perform, but not but not because of some arbitrary target that we've set ourselves or we have to get this many percentage of this. Um, you know, the other thing is Ofsted. So yeah. I, luckily I've always worked in schools that don't really pay much attention to Ofsted in terms of, of we're not preparing for Ofsted, we're just doing what we do. So it's yeah. not really conscious. But some schools aren't that lucky because they, they were graded, they were given a four or a three and they have to constantly be re-inspected so you, you can't live in this fantasy that it's not important for them. But the question is how 
how as a leader are you translating that kind of outside pressure into what your staff feel day to day um, and I think it's really possible for the leadership to absorb some of that pressure without you know impinging onto their staff uh, as well um, but obviously that's easier said than done um, but I think you've got to shield your staff from those pressures as much as possible that's that's kind of I know that's very that's not very tangible but that's that's my big picture advice yeah, yeah, no, it, it makes sense. It's interesting. We had a current Ofsted inspector uh, speak on our Leadership 55 series. And uh, one of the things he said uh, as a tip for Ofsted inspections was, um, you know, just d- don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> it reminded me of you being in those schools that don't necessarily have to worry about it. Ah, it's a nice, nice tip. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's go to another topic of about the uh, the vision and the kind of goals of, of a team. So, in the in the talk you gave, um, you had an example. Um, I believe it was Pixar was the the big example there. They clearly displayed their vision uh, in the workplace by having like the you know the big uh, models and sculptures of their yeah, characters. Right. Yeah. So in a school, and we we know that schools are kind of like chronically underfunded and things like that. Are there easy ways to to do that without relying heavily on, you know, utilizing resources that are so scarce anyway? Um, or, you know, what what if a place doesn't have the resources for that? What do you think? Yeah, so I guess this this kind of links together things like vision, values, um, purpose, and also belonging as well. And these are all I guess what Pixar and and there are really other good examples as well from that. that this is from the culture code of um, military bases where they've got memorabilia or um, or damaged like objects from war zones at the entrance. So it's like a, this visual reminder of why you're here every time you walk mm-hmm. through the door. You know, there's like a twisted girder from from um, like a war zone or whatever. Um, and then uh, just to go back to the England team as well. They're, huge corridor where all their classrooms are and the England headquarters have got murals of every different all teams from different levels all the their kind of vision and value statements all over them like you get sucked into this like colorful kind of um mural as you walk down this very long corridor so I guess these are all cues they're all visual cues um that link to values and vision and that sort of thing and um school, school it's actually really easy for schools to do this as well so there's, there's lots of things you can do it's quite affordable well thing is to get massive um, photographs of school life, the students, classrooms, the environment, all, all around the corridors. So we've got tons of corridors rather than have really awful display boards around the corridors and that, that get afraid and like, people forget to update or you can't even read the writing. Like, I really advocate massive images that really um, define and depict what the school life is like here. So you're always being reminded of it as you walk up and down. Um, and also they, they are a little bit of an expense, but you can get some great wall art either in kind of canvasy stuff or on stickers but up on the wall of your vision. So like we have um uh, we're called St. Peter. So in, in the in the Christian faith, St. Peter, his name translates as Cephas, which is rock. Um so and, and Jesus says to him, On the on you are the rock on which I build my church. Mm-hmm. So we have five rocks that are our key values at the school. So we've we've kind of hired a graphic designer a year ago, and we and we got them to look really nice. And now they're um, in corridors, stairwells, um, 
every week of the assembly PowerPoints linked to one of the rocks and we do a focus on that rock of the week and it's all very visual. So I think there's lots of things that school can do can, to create these visual cues about who are we as an organisation, what are our values, what do we envisage that we want to achieve and, and also it incorporates belonging as well because it's basically saying this is who we are and you're, you're a part of this um, and you're reminded of that every time you walk around the school site. So I think um, we obviously can't like afford 40 foot like statues of Buzz Lightyear <laughs> like Pixar, but, um, but there's, there are things you can do still to keep up, you know, really nice visual cues around the place. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. It actually reminds me of another um, podcast episode we did. I, I interviewed an artist who actually painted murals on school walls. Wow. And um, yeah, that was uh, Sally Newton for those listeners who w- would go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> but it was actually fun and it, and it relates to this as well. Yeah. I'm going to ask a question kind of a bit more general here. Um, how well do you think the idea of running a classroom, so for a teacher running a classroom, translates into leading a team? Is it kind of the, the same ideas as like a school leader or a business leader? Um, or are there kind of different dynamics when you're dealing with children or younger people? That is a really good question. There are, of course, different dynamics um, in a school I think the adults and the children are different and we want to have really collegiate relationships with them where we, you know, we, we get, we have mutual respect and we, and that kind of thing. We don't want to be autocratic, but at the same time, adults and children are different and we're there, we're there to be an authority figure for them to provide safety and structure and, and, and that kind of thing and great relationships for everybody. Um, so there are differences, but at the same time, I suppose it depends how you see your classroom. So I've always viewed my classroom as like a, as like a mini kind of, ecosystem and like we're in this room we are a little group together we're a team and there are certain um cultural norms and expectations of being in this team that we all share including me so i've always thought of my classes as little teams i think it's a bit different for but i'm an english teacher so i always see my classes for four hours a week which actually at secondary school is quite a lot Uh, at primary you might be with a class all day every day those those kind of cultural norms and that sort of team ethos is harder if you teach I don't know music or drama or PSHE you might only see your classes once a week or once a fortnight so I can't kid myself and say everyone can develop a team mindset with their with their classes all the time because everyone has such different um, dynamics and limitations with their with their classes but I do think there's some of that translates you know I create a clear vision and, and sort of set of expectations for my class and I ask them to agree with me and, and suggest things uh, as well. I try to be as consistent in my demeanour and approach with my classes as I would as a staff member leading a, a group of adults in my school too. Um, I am very clear that with my classes that we have a really unique relationship and we're going to really do great things together because I believe in them and that's exactly what I would tell a, a staff team too. So and, and finally I have really high expectations of my classes and I also have high expectations of myself and my team at school too. So there are there are definite similarities. Um however I, I think that certainly my career, I mean I, I did lots of like traditional roles. I went from an English teacher to head of English. Uh, my head then asked me to interview for head of year so I got to try the pastoral side. Uh, I've had lots of different experiences in school and none of them resulted in me being trained or talked about how you run a good team. Mm. It's all very subject or knowledge specific. So Mm. this is what a good head of year does. This is what a good head of English does um, in terms of 
how you get an A star in an English test or how you revise for an exam. But it, I never have really ever had input in my career on well how do teams work and how do you how do you unite a very disparate group of teachers? Some who've been teaching forty years in your department and some who've been teaching for six months. How do you bring them together and, and make a really functional team? So while there are similarities between being a classroom teacher and leading a team at school, equally, I think they're all underinvestment in how those people, once they move up to being a team leader, do that. And often they're just expected to do it without any development. Um, so, so yeah, I think that, that, that's some of the reason why I've done this work in the first place, is I feel like it's underinvested in um, and, and it could be way better. Yeah, no, I think that's an incredibly good point. And actually, it sort of leads into a, another question I wanted to ask, um, which is sort of takes the other side of it. You gave some examples of like, you know, maybe some things you could do to to lead a, a class well um, and, and to lead a team well. But what what do you think are the biggest reasons or, or factors behind like dysfunctional teams in schools? Yeah, well, <laughs> we could be here all day. <laughs> um, and in fact, I recently, I recently tweeted actually um, asking people to tell me what they felt were common dysfunctions among teams, uh, just to get a, a range of perspectives. And, and the whole section of my book is actually dedicated to this. Um, so that that was really interesting. So where do we start? I guess um, there are probably two different sides of it. One is like how the team actually operates and does its work. Um, and what it needs to know to do that work. And the other one is just how the team works together. So just as an example, lots of teams go wrong because they're not even sure what, they're, what they want in the first place. Um, they're not even sure why they're supposed to work together or how they're supposed to do that. Some teams underinvest in knowledge and expertise. So for example, if you lead a pastoral team with heads of year, heads of year pastoral staff, it can be really easy to assume that everyone just knows what they're doing because it's, an, it's quite an established role. Um, and then that's when dysfunction can kick in because inconsistencies happen. New members of the team don't really know what they're supposed to know because there's no kind of handbook or guidance about well, what is the established level of knowledge we need to operate really effectively in this team. So team dysfunction can stem from, well, we don't know what we're supposed to know. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And there's no consistency between what we're doing. Um, so that's one side, the kind of uh, competency side. Hmm. The other side is more about, like I said a minute ago, team dynamics. If teams aren't bonded together, they don't have an established culture of work. Why working together is really positive. That you get these kind of uh, situations and cultures where nothing, nothing really works. So sometimes when you say team dysfunction, people think that means that arguing and, and catty behaviour and meetings are full of arguments. And I would actually refute that and say that's not often the sign of um, a dysfunctional team. There might be things to address there. Certain personalities might dominate, uh, be personal in meetings, and then they need to be kind of pulled up on that and talked to about that and realigned. But actually, the most common dysfunction of a team that I encounter, and this is from seeing teams and actually myself, and getting lots of messages regularly on Twitter from other team leaders, hmm. is the teams that don't feel like they can share with each other. Uh, they don't commit to things, they are quiet in meetings, they go back into classrooms and they kind of have a little a moan about the, the team leader or an aspect of the team life. But it, on the surface, it can look great. It can You can walk into that, that team meeting, oh, it's, just, it's like a nice friendly vibe in here, everyone seems like they're getting on quite well. Um, but then when it really comes to it, no one's committing and no one's really communicating. Mm. So team dysfunction can often be hidden 
And, and that's that's a, a big problem, I think, because it's easy to assume a team is functioning because there's no conflict outwardly, but sometimes there's a whole lot of inner, inner conflict there. Uh, so sorry, I'm not sure how well I've answered that because it's such a huge, it's such a huge field. Um, dysfunction is everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think I think you answered it well. That was Sam Crome, deputy head teacher at St. Peter's Catholic School and author of the upcoming book, The Power of Teams. If you enjoyed Sam and my discussion, don't worry, it's not over yet. There's a lot more where that came from in the second part of the interview, which will be coming out on Hep Talks soon. In addition, you can go to Herringay Education Partnership's Vimeo channel and watch Sam Crome's Big Idea speech on the power of teams, upon which I based many of my questions to him. The link to that video is in the show notes. I'm Luke Kemper, and thank you for listening to Hep Talks. See you next time.